At 70 years old, Patrick Fleming was in the prime of his life. A Navy veteran, Patrick had earned two Purple Hearts for heroic actions in Vietnam. He was proud of his medals and of his rare and valuable coin collection, which he kept stored in his apartment at the Four Freedoms House, a senior living complex in Seattle. And Patrick had just met the love of his life, Rosemary Garnett. They first started chatting in the laundry room, passing the time between loads. And they quickly grew very fond of each other, even started talking about marriage. Both were surprised and delighted to find love so late in life. Rosemary and Patrick would often make dinner together, then watch the evening news. One evening in December of 2011, the couple had just finished their usual routine and it was getting late. Time for Rosemary to take her nightly medication. It was just a short walk back to her apartment. She lived at the Four Freedoms as well. When she went to take her pills, she reached in her fridge and realized she'd forgotten her orange juice at Patrick's place. So she gave him a call. There was no answer. And that was strange, since she'd just left him moments earlier. By the time Rosemary walked back over to Patrick's apartment, it was too late. He was uh, pretty bloody. There was a lot of blood on the floor, blood around the room, and he had vicious wounds to his throat near the point of decapitation and several other superficial stab wounds in his abdomen and chest. It was a violent, violent death. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime. So, Kim, I know this is going to get, you know, really gnarly, but I, I love it that they found love. I love it that, I mean, I think that you have this idea of what it is to live in a senior living facility. You know, I mean, my mom lives at a senior living facility, and she said there's there's lots of drama going on there. <laughs> so I love it that that he found a second chance at love there. Yeah, and, and I've seen a lot of interviews with Rosemary Garnett, his girlfriend, and the way that she talks about him, you can just tell that she really, really is in love with him. You know, she said she never thought that she would feel this way about anyone. At her stage in life, she'd kind of just given up on ever finding that one person that that just fit. And she said Patrick was it for her, and, and she couldn't believe that she finally found him. So he was a war hero. He had his Purple Hearts, and he had this amazing collection of coins. And yeah, they what? say it was worth $60,000 is what they believe it was worth at the time, just various you know, old coins that he had collected over the years and stashed away. Why do you think he didn't have this collection in a bank? Well, he was proud of them. Okay. He liked to take them out, and he wouldn't show strangers, but if you were a close friend of his, um, he loved to share his collection with others because he was he was very, very proud of them. Now, on that night in 2011, let's get back to the scene of the crime. Cloyd Steiger was one of the first detectives to arrive to see Patrick Fleming stabbed and tortured, nearly decapitated. His coin collection was taken along with his life. If I'm crying and all upset, over everything I see, I'm not doing the victim or his family any good. I'm just wasting space because you got to be meticulous and think about this case, right? And think about what you need to do to get the job done and get the fucker in the end, right? That's the way it works. Cloyd is a character. Wow. <laughs> he takes his job very seriously, though. In fact, he is now the chief criminal investigator at the Washington State Attorney General's Homicide Investigation Tracking System. He says on that first visit to the Four Freedoms, He was given two important pieces of information. First, 
that there were three characters seen at the complex's entrance earlier that evening. People at the place said there were these three women sitting out in the sitting area by the elevator and they looked really out of place and they were all dressed like like they thought they were fancy but it was just like garish. So Cloyd filed that information away for later. Those three people, they may not have been involved in this horrific act of violence, but maybe they saw something. So he wanted to remember them. Cloyd also learned that Rosemary wasn't the only person Patrick had become friends with at the Four Freedoms. And she wasn't the only one who lost something precious. Patrick had become close with a woman named Sylvia Sutton. She'd been spending a lot of time with Patrick, and it was starting to make Rosemary suspicious. A detective began looking into Sylvia's connection with Patrick. They discovered that it was no accident. She lived in the same complex. She had been told to move there to look for other wealthy and vulnerable seniors. Sylvia had lost her life partner recently and was very depressed. It was down in Chinatown at a street fair and came across a palm reading booth. And that's where she met Brenda, who she knew as Lady Monica, who read her palm and said, oh, I see a lot of trouble. You have a dark aura, but I can fix it. I have a friend named Father Thomas, but it takes money. And then, of course... She's kind of warmed her way into Sylvia's life and, and worked its way through and then got to the point where when she said, here, take this, it'll relax you and she give her a pill all the time. And, and well, one of my people I talked to in the Roma community told me, well, she's drunk in her because they have access to pharmacies. They can get that stuff. And so she, Sylvia was in such a daze. She gave her over a million bucks, like 1.35 million. This is so triggering for me because... The idea of duping someone so vulnerable, you know, I just I have such a hard time with that. When I was a kid growing up, my mom went to a palm reader. Oh, no. Did she have a dark aura? She she well, what they saw her coming a mile away because she had a, a disease that they didn't know what it was. But one of the side effects of it was that it would make her hands kind of curl. So you can imagine her going into a palm reader and they they're can going to see they her physical see. ailments. Yeah, and Western medicine just wasn't doing anything to help her, so she was vulnerable. And so I, as I'm listening to this, it's it's just it's it's hard to listen to. So did she lose a lot of money? Like um, well, Sylvia? It, it really had it really affected our lives because it she had just not only was she dealing with this disease that they didn't know what it was. Um, it's it, they've now it's mus, it's a form of, a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Mm. But back then they didn't know, and so it started us on this path where we ended up moving into a commune that that <laughs> that wow that that, that basically focused on healthy living, but it was also really kind of crazy, too. So I just think that when you're in a vulnerable, so many people are taken advantage with the gray energy. I mean, anyway. And as Cloyd mentioned, Lady Monica wasn't just a palm reader, but she was also a member of the Romany community, people that some would call travelers or gypsies. And through his work with Seattle police, Cloyd had been aware that there was this criminal element in the Romany community. He'd been aware of it for years. There's a big gypsy presence in Seattle. And I first learned about it when I was doing sex crimes in like the early 90s. The people that I got in touch with, that I hate to call informants, but they really were uh, from the gypsy community, they said that Roma is the culture and gypsy is the criminal element of that culture. And so that's the difference. So, And these people 
consider themselves Roma, not Gypsy, but they have you know their, their own language. It's not written, and and it's an organization with hierarchies. It's almost like the mafia. And like the mafia, they had nearly perfected the art of the scam. For the Gypsy community, they often relied on their ability to gain the confidence of strangers, particularly those in the midst of a crisis, like 80-year-old Sylvia Sutton. She's kind of warmed her way into Sylvia's life and then got to the point where when she said, here, take this, it'll relax you, and she give her a pill all the time. And, well, one of my people I talked to in the Roman community, somebody, well, she's drunk in her because they have access to pharmacies. They can get that stuff. And so she, Sylvia was in such a daze. She gave her over a million bucks, like $1.35 million. Not only did Lady Monica drain Sylvia's bank account, but she took control of her life. She even told Sylvia where to live and who to be friends with. That's how Sylvia came to live at the Four Freedoms House, a place where Lady Monica knew there would be other elderly people that she could take advantage of. You know, in the wild, animals can sense the weak or vulnerable. And I think it's kind of innate in these people because, first of all, they have no human empathy at all. They don't care. Your life is as is important to them as a soda can they threw in the garbage. Through Sylvia, Lady Monica learned of a Navy veteran with a rare coin collection worth upwards of $60,000. But she also learned that Patrick Fleming was very protective of those coins. So she enlisted the help of two other people who she'd been controlling for years. Gilda Ramirez was a Colombian immigrant in her 40s. She'd been working as an architect in New York. She had a new baby and her boyfriend left. And that's when she happened to be walking down the street and ran in to Lady Monica. She goes, I, I'm a palm reader and I can see you have a dark aura. I, I can clean your aura. And she said, and I'm from Colombia in our culture, we believe that. And so she said, Father Thomas would help her and all the same story. And so this lady, Gilda, started giving her money. She mortgaged her parents' house gave her all that money. She was borrowing money from people at work and she finally got fired from her job and she had given her over a million dollars also. Over a million dollars again. Now, years after the scam began, Lady Monica convinced Gilda to move to Seattle and she began directing her life, telling her where to live, telling her who to talk to. She said, I went to Seattle and I became her indentured slave and I did everything for her. I just looked at her house, cooked, cleaned, everything. And I was so, it was kind of like a Patty Hearst thing. So when Brenda came to her and said, we need to go kill this guy and take her coin, she said, okay. <laughs> and she went voluntarily. Didn't even give it a second thought. I mean, th- this is so, uh, this is one of the reasons why I became a reporter and a writer. Because when people just take advantage of people, it's it's the injustice of it all. You know, like you see, I see what's coming And I know from my own experience of watching my mom get taken advantage of, I think it's really important for people to pay attention to the signs if someone is using you. It would seem, from my perspective as somebody who has never been in this situation, it would be obvious if somebody's asking you for large sums of money, obviously, you know, there's a reason for that. And if they don't have anything physical, tangible, provable that you're getting in return for your money, Mm -hmm. that that there's likely a scam there but but see here's the thing there's this book that I've that I've uh, researched it's called The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker and he had this really crazy childhood that was really horrible and so instead of you know in focusing on the positive he wrote this book of like based on like hey this is how you notice it because you'll see that lady monica when he when she went up to her wasn't like 
here, give me a million dollars. It was like, let me help you. Exactly. Yeah, let me help you. You have a dark aura. I can help you fix it. Yeah. And one of the things that they have, like number three on this list of things is charm and niceness. And and so I think that with the con, that's you so know, hard to decipher, though. I mean, how do you know if somebody's just being nice and genuine? I, I mean, like for me, I want to always give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that they're coming from a good place and, you know, unless proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I get where it's like, OK, yeah, well, they're you, being too nice. But what does that even mean? I think that you've been lucky because we've talked about this many times when you're like yeah i'm the type of person that would give a ride to somebody i, I don't think about my safe- <laughs> yeah i don't think i want to help people i mean i think that you know you've been really i mean would you consider yourself lucky because it sounds like you've helped a lot of people in your life and you know con people they know what to do like in in this book that i was reading it says typecasting like they'll say things like Oh, you're good, too good to talk to me, which makes the person like think, no, I'm not. I'll talk to you. Uh, so it's like the art of manipulation to they, they see the type of person that you are, assess it like Lady Monica did here and then go in for the kill. I almost feel like there's a little bit of a of a savant thing happening there where you have to be really good at reading people, at manipulating them like There's so many ways you could use that for good. Well, you know what? Let's just say this. If you if someone tells you you have gray energy and they can help you (laughs) run away. Yeah. And um, but but it is something to note that people do need to like if they're in a more vulnerable position than normal, you know, be be gentle with yourself and don't like I, I don't know. And maybe if you have a family member who is in a vulnerable position, be a little more diligent about checking up on him. Well, and and how many times have you heard somebody who's like, oh, they've been in a breakup and then all of a sudden they meet somebody and they become under their spell and that person manipulates them and the family's like, oh my gosh, we don't even see so-and-so anymore because they're always with this boyfriend or they're always with this girlfriend. And so I think that there's varying degrees and this sounds like this was the worst of the worst. It, it really was. So Brenda Nicholas, that was Lady Monica's real name. The plan apparently was for Brenda Gilda and another of Brenda's patsies, Charles Youngbluth, to overpower Patrick Fleming and use whatever force necessary to take his valuable coins and medals. It was a tip from another elderly victim, Sylvia Sutton, that led detectives to Brenda Charles and Gilda. Charles was known as Father Thomas. Some say he was in love with Brenda. Of course. He was someone she would often call as a sort of backup for her palm reading scam. Once she identified people who had that dark aura, she would promise to fix the problem with the help of Father Thomas, but that would never come cheap. It was actually Charles, Father Thomas, who was the first to be arrested. Cloyd says it was immediately apparent to him that Charles did not act alone. And I'm looking at him, I go, this guy cannot be our guy. This guy is a pussy. (laughs) And he was. He's like a whiny little guy and he's dumpy and he's just, he was so whiny and he's like a, just a little rat you know <laughs> i think cloyd doesn't like whiny little people you know what i just <laughs> cloyd is like is my security blanket right now in this story i mean he's making me feel like you know he's going to get the effort we don't know what that is but i i just feel like i'm so grateful that there's detectives out there yeah to help people like this i mean grateful for the cloyds of the world yeah, exactly thank you cloyd <laughs> so charles denied any involvement with the murder but he did voluntarily give up a sample of his dna during their very first interview session and when those results came back a match 
to blood found at the scene of the crime, Cloyd relished the chance <laughs> to deliver that news. They said, uh, remember when O.J. Simpson, remember when he stabbed those people and his hand slipped and he cut himself? And so I said to Charles, he goes, yeah. You think that ever really happens? He goes, I don't know. I go, yes, you do, Charles, because it happened to you. What? You cut yourself, Charles, and we got your blood. Then I pulled out the lab report, and I said, look at this. And I read him the lab report. And the last line of the lab report is that the probability of finding someone with a matching DNA in general population was one in 54 quintillion. <laughs> and then I said, there's a legal term for the situation you find yourself in today, Charles. And he says, there is. I go, yeah, you're fucked. Oh, my god! <laughs> I didn't know that was a legal term, but apparently uh, Cloyd says it is. <laughs> well, and I love how he, like, Cloyd is setting him up, like the spider web. You can see that, you know, we have the manipulator Lady... What, Lady uh, Monica. Lady Monica. But then on the other side, the good side, you've got Cloyd, who's like setting the trap you can clearly see that that charles is the weak, weak and, link and he's going for him poor charles is in the middle right he's getting manipulated by brenda lady monica he's getting manipulated by cloyd the detective the poor guy doesn't have a spine to stand on well you know what and unfortunately <laughs> he got in with lady monica yeah so Charles Youngblood ended up pleading guilty to murder. He was sentenced to 22 years in prison. But Gilda Ramirez served less than six years in prison because while she helped to plan and carry out the robbery, she didn't actually participate in the murder. Charles, when he was describing the murder, said, we got him on the ground and I don't know where Gilda went. She just disappeared, right? So Gilda said, I went in there and I, and I just couldn't do it. So I ran into the bathroom and locked, but I could see them stabbing him on the floor and I just was getting sick. And that's, you know, because she was not, you know, she's like an architect at one point, right? <laughs> Working, making lots of money. And, you know, and I, I just couldn't go through with it. She just couldn't go through with stabbing a man to death because maybe she had a bit of a conscience. You know, she was lucky she only got six years because, I mean, she was a part of it. Yeah. I mean, I get, I'm totally sympathetic to the fact that she was taken advantage of by Lady Monica, but I don't get how you go so far to the other side. Right. Yeah. You know? Go from being a victim to victimizing others. You would think that because of her experience, she would be more sympathetic to people who are in that position. I don't know. I just I'm having I'm struggling here trying to figure out because she went from being this person who's able to manipulate and get one point three million dollars from one lady and then one million dollars from um, yeah, um, so she got a million dollars from one of her victims. She got a million dollars from a second victim, and now she's going after sixty thousand in coins. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, just, it just doesn't. It doesn't. We talk about human nature, and and it doesn't seem like it's her mo. Right, to, it's not to and go after. Apparently, this guy. she had uh, family members who had some serious medical bills, and so she had been paying those. I mean, I still can't imagine $2 million in medical bills, but this was the story that was told um, during the trial is that, you know, the reason that she needed more money is because she already spent the millions that she had scammed off of other people. So Brenda Nicholas, that Lady Monica, <laughs> she was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 34 years in prison. During her trial, her defense attorney tried to argue that it wasn't Brenda's fault that she had turned into a killer. She said from the time she was born, she was taught to be a criminal and a thief, and that's all she knows. So it wasn't her fault because she was taught to be a criminal and a thief. So I'm curious what you think. Of, we we kind of talked about this very briefly in our last episode, but what do you think about nature versus nurture? Do you buy the argument that because she was raised to be a killer, that in some way mitigates her responsibility in all this? No, I mean, I think that the biology, you know, we're just learning about like for example 
uh, you know, we know now that anxiety is hereditary. Right. You know, and as someone who, you know, struggles with anxiety myself, my I can see it in my daughter. She oh, struggles. yeah. And, and I, I mean, not your daughter, my kids. I'm saying. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so it's like biologically, I get that. So I think that as as um, technology, you know, improves, we're going to find out way more, probably more than what we want to know. But I definitely think that the nurture part, that is a huge, huge, huge part. In fact, I was looking this up. 97% of serial killers came from a crappy childhood. I mean, worse than But crappy. didn't we all, didn't 90% of humanity come from a crappy childhood? Yes. I mean, according to the yeah. people that I speak to, I yeah. can't think of one of them that yeah. says, my childhood was perfect and idyllic and there was nothing wrong. I think it's a combination of both factors. Like you get this really crappy childhood, really abusive and then you've got that biological component that right. maybe, you know, you'll find out, oh, well, this person biologically doesn't handle stress very well, or this is what happens. They have more tendencies toward violence and stuff. And I think they're going to put that together. But as far as uh, Lady Monica, like, this is all her. I, I, I don't believe in the, you know, I was I was raised to be a criminal, therefore it's not my fault. Yeah, and one more caveat to this is um, during Lady Monica's trial, we learned that she has teenage sons. So I don't know what they're up to now, but I hope that they're not going to take the same train of thought and think, well, this is what my family does. So this is who we are. And so this is what we're going to do. I think that it would give them pause to see that what happened. Their mom's like put away for, you know, 30, 34 years. Could be the rest of her life. The rest. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's probably in her 40s right now. So, yeah, she's staring down a long prison sentence. But I mean, what do you think? Do you what? What do you think nature versus nurture? I think, like you said, it's a combination. I feel like when you're born, you're kind of, you have a set of parameters that come with, like, think about a computer operating system, right? There's kind of a set of parameters of what that computer is capable of doing. And I feel like people are sort of the same. You're born with a set of parameters, but where you land within those parameters is really dependent on both your upbringing and then also just your personal choices as you grow and and learn through your experiences and how you choose to respond to those experiences. So, so, I, yeah, I don't think that's it's one or the other. And I think that's the hardest part of understanding human nature is that there isn't an easy answer. It's so many different complicating factors that combine to create the person you become. That's why, you know, you can't predict who's going to be a serial killer mm-hmm. or who's going to be a killer in general. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can also throw in the fact with, you know, people, the screen time and the violence and media. I mean, that that's going to take us down a whole nother rabbit hole for future generations. So we have that to look forward to. So I got to ask a question. In the beginning of the story, Cloyd was like concerned about three women that were really odd in the lobby. Oh, right. With the garish outfits. Yeah. What's the deal with that? Apparently, that was our three perpetrators. What? That was Charles Youngbluff in a wig, along with the other two ladies, Lady Monica. And Charles was dressed as a woman. Yes. So apparently, the three of them had gone to the thrift store. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and picked up some outfits that they thought would help them blend in in this senior living complex. Oh, my gosh. Apparently, it didn't work very well because several people mentioned seeing three garishly dressed women waiting in the lobby that night. This just goes to this the craziness of this crime. Like, how is it possible for a woman to bilk out millions of dollars or $2 million and yet come up with some creepy, uh, you know, like Halloween costumes 
for right before they they perpetrate this murder. And apparently they had another victim in mind. They were going to do this to another person before they went to Patrick Fleming's apartment. But when they went to that gentleman's door and knocked on it and he opened the door, he was super aggressive and was like, you're not coming in here. Go away. I don't know who you are. And basically because of his veracity, they just turned around and decided it wasn't worth it. (laughs) So they went to Patrick's instead. Man. And it's unclear if they plan to commit both robberies, murders, or whether they went on to Patrick because the first one didn't work out. But we do know that they attempted to do this to another person as well. You know, another thing that irritates me about this is that he was a, a veteran, two Purple Hearts. You know, he has this coin collection that's so precious to him. Can't he just have his coin collection? Yeah, it's without, not like he's in some I, I, fancy mansion living up the high life and, you know, he's not going to miss a few coins. I mean, he's somebody who is living a very, you know, frugal, sort of average retirement. And yeah. he didn't have a ton of mementos, but the things that he had were very precious to him. Well, and didn't he say that he would fight for it? Like he would fight for those coins and that if something were to happen, I mean, it's almost like he foresaw that somebody would do this to him, you know, that he would fight for those coins. Well, and and he also was a little bit um, hesitant to share them with people he didn't know. So it was almost like he knew that people might want to take these. And so unless you were a good friend of his, he wouldn't even take them out to show you. I also wanted to share a little bit about, uh, you know, the reason that I chose this story to share with you in this episode is that, you know, I was working in news media when this first happened in Seattle, and I was really curious about this idea of gypsies in the Romani community and what is the difference between a gypsy and a Romani and, you know, what is the Romani community in Seattle like? And like Cloyd said, apparently there is a really large contingent. And so I actually got a chance to go to Vashon Island to celebrate the Romani holiday of Kali I learned about the community from Morgan Ahern. She's a former Vashon Island librarian who retired and was traveling uh, with a Romani museum. She mm-hmm. had like an, a, like an RV type vehicle where, you know, she had things from the Romani culture and she would travel around and, and just help people stay connected with their culture. She says the Roma have to work intentionally to maintain their traditions like their music and their strong family bonds. It's not something that they can do otherwise because they don't have a written language. It's all oral. I was born into a Romani community and then I was taken with other kids, everyone over the age of seven, in a program based on Native American boarding schools. So I have an education, but I traded a lot of my culture to get it. I realized before this story, I had really no no idea about the Romani culture. I mean, of course, we've heard gypsy, but we, we've talked a lot about, like, what what is the correct terminology and talking about? And from the research that I did, it was like they have not trusted a lot of people. And so they keep the culture close to the, you know, close to their chest. Yeah, because, they do. But, I, I mean, it's been fascinating to get to know. And I think it's awesome that you heard this story about, you know, this quote unquote gypsy killer and you wanted to know more about the culture and because you know what happens whenever, you know, there's this horrible news media, then then the stereotyping happens. Right, exactly. And I'm so happy that you took it that step further to to, to shine the light on 
on yeah. who they really are. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So Morgan explained that uh, the ancestors of the Romani people were actually refugees from northern India. And people in Europe, when they came there as refugees, assumed they were from Romania. And so that's why they're called Romani. But they're not actually from Romania. And their nomadic lifestyle, she says, it's not something that they brought with them. That is something that the refugees developed out of necessity because nobody wanted a gypsy living next door to them. This is Morgan's niece, Shon Petamouche. Historically speaking, we couldn't be settled for anywhere too long. It wasn't wanderlust. It was No. And being... so then we developed a way of living that you had to travel because, you know, you were a tinker, you were repairing pots, you were right, or to seasonal or... work. Or... Yeah. So they were forced to be travelers or gypsies or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call that. And, you know, at times I think they find the term gypsy offensive, but at the same time, I think they recognize that part of their culture. Like Cloyd explained earlier, they really see it as Romani is the culture, but gypsy is the criminal element in that culture, and they recognize that. What was your takeaway from that experience? You know, as first a of all, fabulous music. <laughs> Such a fun group of people. They were all up dancing from babies to seniors. Everybody was up dancing together. They were so welcoming. At the end of the night, they did this, I can't remember what the name of the song was, but they had this special song and dance that they would do at the end of celebrations where you would stand in a circle all around this big room and put your arms around each other and sort of sing and dance together as a community. And I've never really experienced anything like that before. So it was really touching to be there for that. And um, and when I talked to her about the fact that they have these roaming communities, like how do you stay in touch? And, and that is one of the most challenging things for them is the fact that, that they don't have a written language. And that's part of the reason Morgan wanted to start her kind of unofficial Romany museum. So Carolyn, what's coming up on the next scene of the crime? You know, I have a really amazing cold case. It's the Mandy Stavick case, and it happened about 30 years ago, and they just recently found out who killed this beautiful, amazing, talented college student. She was home for Thanksgiving and was murdered, and they never could figure out who it was that did it. And after 30 years, the community never gave up, law enforcement never gave up, and they found out who killed Mandy Stavick. Oh, that's going to be a good one. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime.